KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. It's time for Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. This week, we're taking a look into a new in-depth Union Tribune investigation into San Diego's mental health care crisis. What they found coming up next. At every single turn, something was going on and you could see, you know, just how overwhelmed the system is everywhere. We're talking with two journalists from the project, and we hear from the head of San Diego County's Behavioral Health Services on how they're trying to address the growing need. There is need currently uh, in our society for mental health care. Roundtable is coming up next. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. 72 hours. That's the amount of time a person can be held by mental health officials or law enforcement if they're found to be a danger to themselves or others or are severely disabled. It's also the title of a nearly two-year-long reporting project from the San Diego Union-Tribune. 72 hours inside San Diego County's mental health crisis. It tells a sweeping three-day narrative into the heart of the behavioral health treatment in San Diego, and it reveals a mental health care system that's overwhelmed and undermanned at multiple levels. This week on Roundtable, we have two of the journalists behind this project. Blake Nelson is the East County reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune, and Dana Littlefield is also here. She's an editor with the UT who helped lead this investigation. I want to welcome you both here to Roundtable, and we just want to mention, if you're experiencing a mental health or behavioral health emergency, the number to call for help and resources is 988. That's the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. So, guys, this project, it's called 72 Hours. It involved nearly two dozen UT reporters heading out all across the county for three days last April. In it, Dana, your team says they found San Diego's behavioral health system overwhelmed at every step. How did you all see that? Well, we could see it virtually at every turn. Um, I worked in kind of a dual capacity in this project because, yes, I am an editor, I'm public safety editor, but also I stepped up to do a little bit of reporting for this project as well. So I was one of the people who sat in with dispatch. And I personally, you know, having covered law enforcement and courts for a very long time, I've seen a fair amount of things, but I was truly surprised to see the volume of mental health-related calls that came in just to San Diego PD over those three days. We could see it in the streets. The reporters saw it in the streets where, you know, there were people who appeared to be, you know, we're not clinicians, but people who appeared to be in crisis. There were people who tried to respond, law enforcement usually first, but then there was quite a bit of waiting that had to be done. While those law enforcement officers maybe figured out, you know, how to handle this particular person, should that person be taken in, on a 72-hour hold, there were, you know, 
many instances of clinical settings where beds were not available. Um, and, you know, instances where, oh, there might be a bed, oh, but no, there isn't, you know, that kind of glimmer of hope that that went away. Uh, just at every single turn, something was going on and you could see without, you know, having to furrow your brow and think, it about, and think about it too long, you know, just how overwhelmed the system is everywhere. And Blake, I know you were on the ground. Do you have any additional thoughts to add here? I guess I would, I would just sort of add to, so there, there is sort of a step-by-step -step process of the places you're supposed to go when you are in a crisis. And at every single step, there were not enough people, not enough resources, not enough beds. So, you know, you may first go to, if you're having a mental health breakdown, you may first go to a crisis stabilization center. We were repeatedly seeing people stuck in those centers beyond a 24-hour limit set by the state because there were no hospital beds available. We were seeing dozens and dozens of people stuck in the ERs, including children who had expressed suicidal thoughts, stuck at Rady Children's. Once you got into hospitals, we were either seeing few empty beds or even when there were empty beds, there weren't enough staff to monitor uh, the patients. And so they, they just still couldn't take anyone. Then to make things even worse, even when you're ready to get out of the hospital, the county has lost so many residential care facilities uh, that sometimes you can get stuck in the hospital. We found uh, one patient who had been in Sharp Mesa Vista for 242 days. Scripps had had a patient for 530 days. A patient at the county psychiatric hospital had hit 711 days. So it is just backlog after backlog after backlog. And can one of you sort of break down how San Diegans in crisis are cared for when it comes to emergency psychiatric needs? I mean, you guys sort of hit on this a little bit, but it sounds like first responders and law enforcement are typically sort of on the front lines here. Usually what you see right away when somebody is in crisis is, you know, the 911 calls coming in or the person, him or herself or a loved one calling a police department, sheriff's department, some other law enforcement agency to say, hey, we need help here. What I was able to see is, you know, when the calls came in, a lot of those calls, as we just mentioned, had to hold because you might have the law enforcement who's there. They recognize that we might need to call in a PERT team, a psychiatric emergency response team to respond. And that would be a team that would include both, you know, law enforcement as well as mental health clinicians who could, you know, evaluate and deal with the situation at hand. Uh, but there aren't enough of those. So a lot of time you had waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for that. And then once determination was made to perhaps put this person on a 72-hour hold, then you've got the person now in transit to the psychiatric hospital, the you know county mental health. Uh, and then there's a whole process there for the person to actually be admitted, if there is indeed room for that person to be admitted. And, you know, during your guys' three-day reporting project last April, you found that law enforcement countywide received nearly 250 calls relating to mental health, and the majority of those calls were 5150s. It was mentioned a lot in your guys' stories. Can you describe exactly what that is? Is this that 72-hour hold you're talking about, or what is a 5150? Yes, indeed. That is the 72-hour hold. So under state law, that is the amount of time that a person can be held involuntarily. If, as you mentioned earlier, Matt, you know, if that person has been deemed a danger to him or herself, if that person is severely disabled, 
I feel like I'm forgetting a component, Blake. Threat to themselves, threat to others, or gravely disabled. Threat to others. Yes. So this is, so that is a tool that can be used by law enforcement. But, you know, it's not a fix. That's for someone who needs help immediately right now. And it is, for a lot of people, a pretty traumatic experience. You know, when your liberty is taken away from you, you're, you know, put into a clinical setting, you don't want to be there, you are in the throes of crisis. The goal is to get the person stabilized right away and, of course, reduce the threat to themselves and to other people. But, you know, this can be a very, very traumatic, disturbing, unpleasant time for the person who's going through that, as well as, you know, if that person has family members who are available and are witnessing, it's hard for them, too. It's a pretty big strain. So it might be the kind of thing where it is necessary, but it comes with its own set of problems as well. And Blake, when you were out there in the field, you know, those three days, how did you see those 5150s being used? It's an interesting spectrum. There, you know, there was one officer I talked to who placed a 5150 on a guy at the airport and it was, it was very, very calm. This guy had sort of come to the realization of, I am tired of being homeless. Uh, I'm thinking about hurting myself. I need help. Um, and it was so when they brought him to the county psychiatric hospital, a lot of times your handcuffs would handcuffed, even though you're not under arrest, which can sort of add to the trauma of this. And a lot of times they don't take off the handcuffs until you're medicated. But in this case, the guy was so calm. Everyone was so calm. The handcuffs came off right away. You know, it, it looked like it was going in the right direction. There was another example. I talked to one of the doctors at a psychiatric hospital at Sharp Mesa Vista. It was a very uh, contentious decision to place this woman in his office on a 5150. Uh, she was yelling and fighting. Um, they had to bring in a whole team. That was a very, very contentious stay that lasted much longer than three days. You can extend the hold if you get permission from an, uh, from a court official. But one of the things we noted in the epilogue to the story uh, with uh, that second anecdote is that woman, the doctor told me, called him months and months later and said, uh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I, I'm really, you know, I, I appreciate all that you did for me. I don't remember very much of what happened, but I really appreciate you helping me in in that tough, that tough moment. So there are um, there are some some bright spots here. You know, oftentimes when law enforcement responds to these types of mental health crises, they aim to do so with a PERT team. Somebody mentioned it earlier. It's a psychiatric emergency response team, and it involves a clinician that's paired up with law enforcement. And reading your guys' 72-hour series, it seemed one of the most repetitive requests from dispatcher police. Is a PERT team available? Is a PERT team available? And I know that, I don't know if it was you, Blake, but you all followed one PERT team clinician. What did he say about how this system works or, or maybe doesn't work? He, if you're referring to Brian Cardoza, who works with Harbor Police a lot, a lot of what his work is, is actually uh, maybe preventative is the wrong word, but a lot of times he's just going out and talking to people on the streets, in parks. Um, and then when there is a crisis, he'll get pulled in with law enforcement. He, he spoke very highly of what that working relationship looks like with law enforcement. I think the issue he runs into that all PERT clinicians are running into is there's not enough of them. And so he's on one call uh, that can last hours and hours and hours, especially if someone has to be admitted to jail uh, or someone needs additional treatment or more interviews. That takes him out of the field for a long, long time. And then if other issues happen, there's just nobody to send. 
I think one thing that was interesting to me listening to calls coming into dispatch, I know I figured uh, that, you know, you would have dispatchers requesting the per teams on on behalf of the officers who are on scene and vice versa. Officers telling dispatch, oh, yeah, we're going to need a per team out here. Can you can you get one out here? But what was surprising to me was the number of calls that I heard were the people in crisis themselves were requesting PERT. I heard that over and over and over again. I heard, you know, a, a woman say, you know, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of this. You know, can somebody, I need a PERT team. I need somebody to come talk to me from specifically a PERT team. And the woman, you know, she knew exactly what she believed she needed and what she wanted. She said, not only do I want the PERT team, but I want the PERT team to take me to Sharp Mesa Vista. And it, it sort of brings us to this topic of, you know, a non-law enforcement response for these types of things. And there's been a push in recent years not to involve the police. And that's where these mobile crisis response teams come into play. No police involved, just clinicians out in the field. How did you guys find that worked out in, in, like, in practicality? Well, a lot of people are pleased to to have those teams available. The idea behind them is not only that you have a group of people who are trained to deal with a variety of crises on you know multiple levels, but the other side of that is that simply the mere presence of law enforcement can tend to escalate a situation. So by removing that part of the equation, you've got something hopefully a little bit calmer to to deal with, a, a, a less volatile situation potentially uh, to deal with. So, you know, there aren't as many mobile crisis response teams as there are PERT teams right now, but I know that that's something that the county is working on. And Blake, go ahead. I just add in two things. One, one of my colleagues spoke with the head of an LGBTQ resource center in North County, who's especially uh, just effusive about how wonderful these MCRT teams are to come to his center when someone's in a crisis or having a breakdown. He, he loves having that option. One thing that's important to note, though, is mobile crisis response teams will not deal with anyone who's potentially violent or has a weapon, which takes a slice of, of these crises off the table immediately. So if there's any threat of anyone being hurt, that is not what they're going to do. And even if if that exists with a PERT clinician, the PERT clinician is going to step back and let law enforcement deal with it. So that's that's an important caveat to sort of note here. You know, Dana, I'm, I'm curious, as the public safety editor, you've been, you've been with the UT for many years. Have you noticed the worlds of mental health and law enforcement, you know, kind of more intertwined than maybe before you started this beat? Without question, yes. The project, all of the data that we gathered really illustrates that. But, you know, more anecdotally, just from my own perspective, for what that's worth. Absolutely, without question, I've seen more and more situations where mental health is a huge component of whatever crime story we happen to be reporting on. Uh, there's a breaking news incident that we are responding to, meaning our newsroom is responding to uh, far more often than, you know, a decade or so ago when I, uh, well, more than a decade or so uh, when I started working at the UT. We're just seeing it more and more and more. And these situations are extremely complicated because they're unpredictable. And you have to, the people who are responding to to deal with these situations have to deal with the safety of 
those who are in crisis, those who might be around the people who are in crisis, and then, of course, the first responders themselves is an exceedingly difficult, complicated situation every time. If you're experiencing a mental or behavioral health crisis, the number to call for help and resources is 988. Stick with us here on Roundtable. After the break, our mental health system discussion continues. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. We're speaking with the San Diego Union Tribune's Blake Nelson and Dana Littlefield. We're talking about their recent investigation into San Diego's behavioral health system. You all did a great job of highlighting a lot of personal stories in this project. Uh, Blake and, and Dana, if you want to, after, are there any that stand out to you here? I think the two biggest ones that have stuck with me are the stories of a woman named Crystal Jenkins and a young man, uh, he's in his 20s, named Yu Hao Du, um, because in some ways their stories are very, very similar, uh, but they their lives have taken very dramatic turns in different directions. Crystal, uh, several years ago, was hearing voices um, that were telling her terrible, horrible things. Uh, she had a conversation that she doesn't really remember with a neighbor while holding a knife while she was hearing some of these voices. The neighbor called the police. Um, and as her case started to work its way through the criminal justice system, uh, someone told her about this thing called behavioral health court. Uh, that's for people who are in the criminal justice system, but who also have serious mental illnesses. Uh, and it's sort of a way to keep people out of jail if they commit to therapy and living in a group home, taking medication and stuff. And her life has just improved so dramatically over the past couple of years. We, one of my colleagues was in the courtroom with her when she had this sort of big victorious moment with the judge. Uh, the judge advanced her to the ne- this next level of the program. As her, she's in school, she's got a job. She's just doing very, very well. Uh, and it was really, really inspiring to see how just day in, day out, she is working really, really hard and getting better. Contrast that with this man in his 20s named Yu Hao Du. He was an uh, immigrant exchange student from China, uh, was studying physics at UC San Diego, and was released from a mental health facility on Monday. We chose these three days, the 72-hour period at random, and he just happened to get out on Monday. And on Wednesday, he was arrested uh, for allegedly shooting a California Highway Patrol officer um, while in the middle of a crisis. I have to emphasize allegedly here, uh, he has not yet been convicted. He has pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, but he started to spiral during these 72 hours uh, that we were we were reporting um, and it ended very, very violently and, uh, and an officer almost lost his life. Um, but the officer survived and he, uh, Dew is still in custody. And Dana, anything to add here? So as I've mentioned previously, I spent some time sitting with um, San Diego Police Dispatch. And one of the very first things that I heard and saw um, referring to the monitors that the um, the dispatchers are watching as the calls come in um, was a call about a 
potential suicide from the Coronado Bridge. As reporters, as a newsroom, um, we don't often, yes, sometimes we do, but we don't often write about individual suicides. Um, we have a number of rules about you know, how it is that we report on that information. I should say that we have done broader stories about suicide and told individual stories about people and families in that context. But, you know, typically we don't write something every time, you know, someone takes his or her or their own own life, particularly if it's done, you know, in a in a private sort of setting. Um, so it so for us to not only begin the project with that incident, you know, it was near the beginning of the reporting on this. It was early Monday morning, about 10 a.m. And then to go back and actually hear from the family and hear about, you know, who this person was and how they were dealing with that very intense, heart-wrenching, excruciating loss. It was just, um, again, it's not something that we do in every instance. And it you know, all, of course, due respect to that family and what they're going through. I don't mean to trivialize any of that in any way. Um, but having their story lent another perspective, another, um, you know, a- another layer to this story that we were trying to tell. Um, I am grateful that the family opened up to us in that way. But of course, oh, so very sorry that they experienced this loss in the first place. And Blake, let's discuss where people who are in a mental health crisis can go for help or actually get some treatment. It sounds like there's a lot of different options available, all at sort of different levels of acuity. Yeah. So you can check yourself into what's called a crisis stabilization center on your own. You don't necessarily have to be brought there by law enforcement. Um, You'll be assessed at a place like that. And officials can decide whether or not they think you need to go to a locked psychiatric unit at a hospital There are definitely crisis lines to call, like 988, the National Suicide Hotline number. There are clubhouses that the county funds around the county um, for people just sort of day in, day out, uh, places that people can go in day in, day out uh, to receive all sorts of help and services. I think one of the biggest issues that experts flagged for us is most of the resources that currently exist are for people in a severe crisis. Um, And even those are strained. And there is less for people who are heading toward a crisis, but have not necessarily gotten there yet. And so one of the things the county government especially is trying to do is shift to a more preventative model um, by hiring people with mental illnesses who have struggled with mental illness in the past, who can function as what they're calling peer support specialists, who can sort of help people before it gets to the, I need to dial 911 moment, but how long that's going to take, how many people need to be hired, how that's going to be paid for, that's still a moving target. But Blake, it also sounds like that your reporting found just in these three days that many of these different options where people can seek treatment, maybe in the later stages, are full. How did you see that presenting a challenge for whether it be law enforcement or, or caseworkers or peer support specialists in terms of getting people connected to the care that they need. Yeah, there's not enough space for anybody. I mean, the especially I can zero in on residential care centers, which are places that uh, if you if you get out of the hospital but you still need help, say cooking your own meals, 
uh, or, or it's not really safe for you to dispense your own medication. These are places you're supposed to go, be able to go to live. But the county has effectively lost um, dozens and dozens of places like this over the past couple of years, which together had spaces for about 500 people. Uh, and so, you know, where are these people going? Well, a lot of them are ending up on the streets. That can lead to all sorts of other problems, which is why so many of them are then ending up in jail. And so sort of as a county, we've cut spaces for a lot of people who need some extra help. This contributes to the homelessness issue, although that's very complicated. Um, this contributes to the jail population. Yeah, this just contributes to stressors on so many other systems. This was sort of surprising, and I'll just read the text quoted directly from your story. More than hospitals or crisis centers or nonprofits, San Diego jails are the region's largest provider of mental health care. Can you break that down? How or why is that the case? Well, that's been the case for many, many, many years. So I think back in 2016, I was involved in some reporting that really was launched from that particular you know, fact that the county jails are the largest healthcare provider in the region. There are so many people who, again, like Blake just mentioned, who are not necessarily at the crisis level, we'll get to the crisis level folks in just a moment, but the person might be, you know, in the wrong place and people are calling and complaining about this person. The person is trespassing. The person is, you know, loitering in the wrong place. You know, there are all sorts of reasons that somebody can be picked up, taken to jail, um, and frankly, they stay there for quite a while. And that's where the sheriff's department is administering meds to people who need them. So that is at, you know, a lower level. Let's talk about the people in the crisis level. You know, so when someone is at the level where they are, you know, causing harm or threatening harm um, or they've, you know, perhaps broken into a building, a home or something like that. Well, clearly that's a person who's going to be arrested and taken to jail. The argument there, of course, is, is that really the proper place for that person? Um, is there somewhere else, some other kind of treatment environment where that person would be better served because their mental illness is directly related to that activity that landed that person in jail. Um, so that's a big part of the problem here. So my point is this, is that you have people at a variety of levels who are dealing with a variety of different kinds of mental illness, and they are taken to jail for lots of different reasons, and the jail is obligated to provide care to those people. And for a lot of them, that includes uh, administering these psychotropic medications. You know, this mental health crisis that you all describe and really profiled is not just impacting adult San Diegans. Your reporting finds that the number of kids put on these 72-hour psychiatric holds, it's higher than the state average. And the rate of kids put into these holds has increased tenfold over the last 30 years. And your series unfortunately points to at least a couple instances of teens that were considering suicide. Uh, how are those cases treated differently than, than maybe like ones involving adults? Well, a lot of the same challenges exist when we're talking about young people, minors, as opposed to adults. What I heard in my reporting, what I learned in my reporting and saw in my reporting was many situations where the first people who are dealing with a child who is in crisis, those are the educators. 
And I heard many calls coming from schools or maybe even group home situations where you've got a, an educator sitting with the child, isolating the child so that that person is not in contact with other children um, and, you know, trying whatever that person can do to calm the situation down and remove anything that from the situation that might be a problem, you know, potential weapons, uh, that sort of thing. I remember specifically a call from a principal at a school, and I was so surprised at how calm, cool, and collected this person appeared to be on the call. And uh, basically, they had isolated the child, taken away some things that could be dangerous, and the the principal was on the phone with dispatch being told that there was no one available to respond right away. And the principal's response was basically something to the effect of, yeah, I, I know. The gist of it was kind of, I've been here before. So schools now are having to address how they will deal with this situation or these types of situations as they come up. And all of this has been exacerbated by the pandemic. You're finding more and more and more young people dealing with stressors and the schools actually having to figure out how they will deal with those stressors and how to get the child the assistance they need. Let me just also throw in a depressing stat that during this three-day period that we looked at, Rady Children's Hospital always had at least 10 mental health patients in the ER uh, because there was no space at a psychiatric unit. And their head of uh, behavioral health services said the hospital typically gets more than 20 suicidal children every day. You know, every single day, newsrooms have to make decisions about what to cover, what to investigate. Why did you guys choose to, to, to do this series? And we'd love to hear from both of you on this. Because it is such a problem. You can see it when you're walking down the streets, you know, when you maybe take a walk through, you know, the East Village. Um, you can see people who are clearly in the throes of some type of mental health crisis. Um, but what this, what was interesting about this project and what was kind of one of the motivators of this project, I think I'm not speaking out of turn when I say Tarsi Connors, who was lead editor on this project, you know, she and I wanted to show that this isn't just about the person you might see on the street who's in crisis. This is something that's happening in every neighborhood, in every, you know, socioeconomic level, you know, at every age level. It's everywhere. And a lot of it is happening behind closed doors, or at least behind the doors that not all of us get access to. So it's happening inside people's homes. It's happening inside the hospitals. It's happening inside these um, care centers that we've mentioned. And we wanted to show all of that. And you guys did a great job of putting you know, faces to this. Like you said, maybe people think it's maybe just people living on the streets, but it's students, it's neighbors, it's brothers, it's sisters. Uh, Blake, anything that, that, that you want to add here or, or maybe why you got involved in this project? I, well, I would just add that the data, I mean, backs up everything that Dana was just saying. I mean, you can actually map where these calls are coming from, what zip codes, and the majority of calls are coming from homes. They're not coming from, you know, downtown. There, there are issues downtown, but when you actually look at this, it's coming from rural areas, it's coming from urban areas. And I think, you know, the privacy 
of people caught up in the system, especially people in the throes of crisis, was a paramount concern for us. And we, you know, anyone whose name is in the story, it's because we spoke to them directly or their family gave us permission. You know, we were not, especially when we were in these hospitals, we were taking extraordinary steps to make sure we were not putting anyone in the spotlight unfairly or wrongly. But I guess just to echo what Dana was saying, since everyone's sort of aware that mental health is an issue, I just don't think, I certainly didn't have a good sense of the scale of the issue, partially because of the privacy concerns. It's brought, you can't just walk into a psych hospital and start filming. But I think that was a, a main driver of like, because these privacy concerns are so, are such an issue, nobody really understands the scope of this. And so we really got to dig into what does this look like on the ground, day by day, minute by minute. It was a great series, very eye-opening, and you guys had unprecedented access to this crisis. Dana Littlefield is an editor with the San Diego Union-Tribune, and Blake Nelson is the UT's East County reporter. They're among the nearly two dozen reporters behind the new series, 72 Hours, Inside San Diego County's Mental Health Crisis. I want to thank you both so much for joining us here on Roundtable to share more about this incredibly important project with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, the number to call for help and resources is 988. Coming up, we're talking with the leader of the county's Behavioral Health Services Department. More on how they're addressing the growing need for mental health services. You're listening to KPBS Roundtable. I'm Matt Hoffman. We're continuing our conversation on San Diego's mental health crisis. We just heard from some members of the reporting team over at the San Diego Union-Tribune. We were talking about their new series on San Diego's behavioral health system. And joining us now is Luke Bergman. He's director of San Diego County's Behavioral Health Services, and his department oversees many of these initiatives that the UT series mentioned. Luke, thanks so much for joining us here on Roundtable. Thanks for having me, Matt. So the 72-hour series from the Tribune, it gave some unprecedented access to see how the county's behavioral health system really works, from the calls that police and the crisis teams get to how people are treated and then what happens after that. They described a mental health system that is overwhelmed. Generally, do you agree with that assessment? Why or why not? I agree uh, with the, the notion that there is need currently uh, in our uh, kind of in our society for mental health care that pretty dramatically exceeds the resources that are put into it. We absolutely need more resources in this space than than have traditionally been uh, been put into it. And so, you know, I think the 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 depth of the reporting from the Union Tribune, um, uh, I think, contributes to making a strong case for that. In the UT's reporting, they mention a few instances where somebody is trying to get help who's going through a mental health crisis, but they're told that there's no room or there's not even maybe somebody available to respond. What are you and others doing to solve that? Or, or what's the solution here potentially? Hmm. I think the, the most important thing to note is that there isn't a solution. We need many 
solutions. Uh, one of the, um, I think, really important aspects of, of behavioral health that it's important to, to sort of lead with is that it's very variable. There are lots of diagnoses that fit with under the broader umbrella of behavioral health condition. Most of the attention is, is put on what we need to engage people who are in moments of crisis. And what do we need to do um, sort of in those moments of, of kind of heightened agitation to de-escalate them and to, and to get them somewhere? 5150 holds. That's part of you know, a, a longstanding policy in, in California that enables um, people to, to basically be mandated into care uh, in emergency settings and then potentially conserved for longer periods of, of time. A ton of attention and policy work goes into that 5150 hold process. The, I would just say the, the broader public discourse, the, 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 the public imagination around behavioral health is mostly preoccupied with, with that, that moment of crisis. What doesn't get enough attention and where we really need, I think, collectively to sort of shift our gaze toward is, is the longer arc that we need people to sustain in care. Right? We, we, we think about behavioral health in terms of crisis, almost inevitably. It's part of our language for describing and thinking about behavioral health. I'd, I'd note, you know, other aspects of healthcare don't use the word crisis. We talk about critical care. We talk about acute care. We talk about intensive care. We talk about crisis only in the context of, of, of behavioral health. So that's getting tons of attention. What isn't getting attention is the fact that people who are in moments of crisis in behavioral health need ongoing care in almost all cases. Behavioral health conditions are chronic conditions. People need not just crisis care, they need continuous care over years and years. And I know that we've, we've talked about that continuum of care, but some of these solutions and some of these preventative measures, we know that they, they cost money, right? I mean, can you give us a sense of maybe how much is being spent now? I believe your department had one of the largest increases in the last county budget. And would more money like, is that like the, the fix here, the solution here? Well, it's not just more money. It's more money wisely spent. It's true that the Behavioral Health Services Department budget has increased really uh, dramatically. Um, and we would say needs to continue to increase to create spaces for those longer durations of continuous care that, that we need. And I'll, I'll just point to one category of, of service provision, uh, Matt, to kind of really um, highlight an answer to your question, and that's Borden care. Borden care are spaces, and in San Diego County, these have mostly been group homes uh, where people with serious mental illness can stay with 24-7 support these aren't clinical settings. These are residential settings, homes, but where people get support with activities of daily living that really sort of enable them um, to, to, you know, ultimately, in most cases, and hopefully live, uh, live independently. We have had in San Diego County overall a 20% reduction in, uh, in the number of board and care beds available. But board and care is especially inaccessible to people on Medi-Cal, 
who don't have resources. The cost of a board and care bed on average in San Diego County is $6,000. Most people on Medi-Cal only have $1,200 to spend uh, on a board and care bed per month. So we need pretty massive additional resources in the board and care space to build up that infrastructure in terms of you know the physical infrastructure, the beds, but also to establish a workforce that can care for people ongoing in those settings. I, I don't have a you know total number for that. I can I can tell you that um, it's much cheaper to build a board and care bed than it is to build a hospital bed. We've we at the county have recently sought grant funding from the state that we would spend establishing additional board and care spaces. Um, we're seeking over $100 million of support from the state in order to do that and in order to establish about 200 board and care slots. And when you say board and care, I, I assume you're talking about like residential treatment facilities where somebody could stay for a few days? No, actually, let me, let me clarify. So when I'm talking about board and care, I'm talking about places that are, that are in most cases, generally, their homes, their houses, where people would stay not just for days, but months minimally sometimes years uh, so these are these are residential settings they're not clinical settings they're residential settings where people can have access to ongoing support if there was one category of service that i would say we in san diego county most need to invest in uh, it is this long-term care board and care residential setting and i don't know if there's a simple answer to this but Whose responsibility is that to like build out when we talk about building more places for people to go? Is that like the sharps and the scripts, the hospitals or these acute care facilities? Is it the county, the yeah. state, the federal government? These have mostly historically in the county, they've been established by um, enterprising entrepreneurial family homeowners who decide that this is the, the thing that they would like to do with a resource that they have. The, the state of California, the Newsom administration, is definitely pushing money into this space in ways that they haven't uh, before. As kind of a part of the Care Court initiative, they've created a behavioral health bridge housing fund uh, that may help us uh, to subsidize stays in board and care. We at the county have for years been pushing money over which we have some discretion into um, board and care operations to try to incentivize care for people on Medi-Cal in these spaces. I think the, you know, the, the big questions that are still outstanding are exactly the ones that you were, that you were beginning to flag. What role could mainstream healthcare or hospital systems play in supporting board and care? settings. That's an open question. I don't think there's great clarity about that, but I think it's, it's, a, it's an area of work that really needs to be explored. And then ultimately, uh, a, a kind of a, a deeper question would be, what role does our public insurance system potentially play in supporting these kinds of settings? Generally, historically, our public insurance system, Medicaid, doesn't pay for housing pays for clinical services. And that's a very, in terms of policy, that's a very bright line um, that has historically applied to how Medicaid works. Um, at the same time, everybody in this field knows that health and housing are very intimately intertwined. And so there's a strong argument to be made that public insurance could play a more significant role in sustaining this kind of uh, care in uh, home settings. 
And when we talk about, you know, responses to those who are going through a behavioral health kind of emergency, there's been some work at the county to move away from, you know, a law enforcement only response, maybe if it's possible to just have like a a clinician go out there. Uh, Is that something that you think that you still want to invest in or invest more in and pleased with how that's been going? or, Or how do you see that working out? We're extremely pleased with how that's been going. Um, the the just volume data that you know that we're beginning to see um, as early returns for our mobile crisis response teams across the county have been very very positive. We're making contact with thousands of uh, of people over thousands of encounters um, that are in in most cases resulting um, in uh, stabilization on site without needing to transport somebody for additional emergency care. I mean, these are cases that could very easily continue to escalate and result in really bad outcomes without this intervention. We're also seeing um, increasing numbers of 911 calls diverted from police response to mobile crisis uh, response team. Uh, uh, response and and deployment. And uh, it's important to remember the the mobile crisis response service is accessible through calling 988, which is the the federal uh, mental health uh, crisis hotline number, um, but also through 911. And at this point, though, you know, the, the, the numbers, of course, didn't you know, they didn't reflect this uh, distribution at the outset. But at this point, as things continue to evolve, about 45% of mobile crisis response team deployments start with a call to 911. They start with a call, in other words, that previously would have led to, to police deployment um, and very likely not as positive an outcome as we're seeing with the MCRT deployments. And as we wrap up here, a final question, uh, you know, generally, what resources are there for people who may be in need of some mental health services? Where can people go? We know we have the 988 crisis line. That's, I would say, a, a most important thing to remind people uh, that, that it really is as simple as dialing three numbers uh, to get access to the access and crisis line here. And that's a it's a very robust service in San Diego County. You can talk to a live clinician. It's not a recorded service. You're talking to a a live licensed clinician who can communicate with you in over 150 languages and get you connected to ongoing clinical care. So if, if, you know, if anybody who is is listening is concerned about, you know, getting access to care and doesn't know where to begin, 988 uh, is, is certainly the best recommendation that I could make. Luke Bergman is director of the county's Behavioral Health Services Department. Luke, thanks so much for joining us here on Roundtable. My pleasure. Thank you, Matt. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. Leave us a voicemail at 619-452-0228. You can also email us at roundtable at kpbs.org. You can listen to our show anytime as a podcast. KPBS Roundtable airs on KPBS-FM at noon on Fridays and again at Sunday at 6 a.m., Roundtable is produced by Andrew Bracken, and Rebecca Chacon is our technical director. I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us.
KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I.